Listen local. Conservatives, there's a reason why all eyes are on you in this moment. Donald Trump's expected presidential nomination has some voters on the right vexed. But politics aren't all about who's in the White House. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm asking conservatives who don't support Trump to share where they intend to put their energy this election year. Record a message for us at notesfromamerica.org and then listen live. Sunday evening at 6, live on Radio Catskill. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Farm Arts Collective, located on Willow West Organic Farm in Damascus, Pennsylvania. Farm Arts Collective's programs intersect the practices of farming, performance, food, and ecology. FarmArtsCollective.org From the Community Foundation of Orange and Sullivan, a publicly supported philanthropic institution, CFOSNY.org. And from listeners like you, who donate at WJFFRadio.org. WJFF Jeffersonville. W233AH Monticello. Good morning. Welcome to Catskill Character. I'm your host, Donna Fellenberg. You know, it's not every day that you're sitting in the chair at your hairdresser's and he whispers to you as a client comes through the door, now there's someone you should interview. And boy, was he right. My guest today, John Tomlinson, is certainly a Catskill character. Originally from Boston, John spent many years living and working in New York City after he got out of the Army. The Army was a very positive experience, which John will talk about, and we'll talk about his many years creating art. So let's get to it. Welcome to Catskill Character, John. Thanks for having me, Donna. You were always interested in art. And in fact, in high school, you were considered the class artist, right? Yes, I was. What did you do to deserve that moniker? You know, in the 1950s, the popular guys... We're all athletes. Artist types like me, I think there were two or three of us, uh, were just kind of outliers. But when it came to designing the yearbook for 1956, <laughs> they asked me to do the drawings in it. And my other buddy did the photography. So there was a photographer and an artist, and people came to us whenever they needed images of some kind. I mentioned in the intro that the Army was a very positive experience for you. This is something that you did after high school. Tell us about that. The Army gave me a choice when I was about to join up. This is is in the age of people being drafted. So I wasn't being drafted. It was between the wars, between Korea and and the Vietnam War. And uh, so I I was surrounded by all these draftees who were like really disgruntled. What am I doing here? And and yet they were teaching me all kinds of things. Like the first time I ever, ever met black people, there were no black people in my town, and found out that, hey, this black person has a degree from the New England Conservatory of Music. Or, or Jews who turned out to be wonderful teachers and funny guys and really uh, helped me form out who I was and respected me, mm. even though I outranked them all. Anyway, I met all kinds of people from all over the United States. And that was like widening my awareness of other people in the country. Oh, that's fantastic. So it really opened you up. Very much so. Yeah. Of course, I learned how to use all kinds of weapons, which I sometimes look back on and say, did I really use a bazooka? Did I really really run a machine gun? Which I did, you know, in training. But then I went to photography school. And uh, that was quite good. When I picture the lockers in the army, I associate them with the pinup girls from the movies, you know, the (laughs) old movies like Betty Grable. But the pinups in your locker were quite different, weren't they? 
Yes, and we had two we had two lockers and a foot locker. So uh, one of the lockers was a private one, your own locker. You know, you didn't have to put any army material in it. And whenever they did an inspection, the lieutenants would look at how how neat you are and so on. And they loved my personal locker because I had all kinds of drawings pinned on the door. Did you so have these, drawings of them? No, no, and just just a uh, whole variety of drawings that I was always doing. You know, some kind of drawings. But they were they were very impressed. So these guys who were usually very stern and orderly and you know tough tough guys, they would kind of melt when they saw the drawings and and wow. really ask me about it and so on. So that was really a very un, unexpected and very pleasant experience. You know, just to touch upon something that we were talking about earlier, being the class artist in high school, it's that whole thing about being the outsider. And, you know, kids in high school can be just so cruel and so mean, but you had a skill that they respected. So even though you were kind of an outsider, you weren't a jock or whatever, you had this skill. And it was the same thing my son encountered when he was in high school. He was very much an outsider. He played the piano. So they called him the class musician. And even though he wasn't popular, you know, he didn't go to parties and do all those kinds of things. They still respected him because he had a skill. And, you know, it makes you feel really sorry for those kids who are outsiders, but they don't have any exceptional skill. So they're just completely, they're almost invisible. I guess invisible is a good word uh, to, to describe it. But one one great aspect of it is that I did the artwork in the yearbook, the 1956 Reading, Massachusetts yearbook, and it won the Columbia Journalism Prize for best yearbook of 1956. Wow. Yeah, but then things shifted. So when it was time to reward us, the photographer and friend and, and me, uh, they gave uh, the the, the edit, editor of it, the young young woman who excelled in English. And, and literature, they gave her a big scholarship to a college in Maine, and they gave me $25. Oh, God. Wow. Well, so, so, you know, that's when I started to be disgruntled about yeah, things. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so what did you do after you left the Army? I wanted to go to art school, and I, I missed the deadline. They, they had already chosen all their students for the next semester. So I went to the Massachusetts College of Art in Boston, which was a state art school. It cost $100 to go yeah. one semester. I went there two years and I learned all the basics. It was really quite wonderful. And uh, I learned that Boston was very much a traditional art place. Had a lot of history and we had great teachers. But then I, I had a love affair with a very nice woman and uh, we decided we wanted to go to New York together. I just I just quit Massachusetts College of Art and went to New York and spent six years just being a hippie. Oh. So, you know, I met all kinds of people, Allen Ginsberg and um, just famous people who were always hanging out there in the, in, in the Lower East Side of New York. So that was that. That's, and then eventually after the six years, I said, maybe I ought to go back to art school. <laughs> So I kept passing this beautiful red building in Astor Place and uh, turned out to be Cooper Union, the old, one of the oldest art schools in the country. And it was free also, private and free. So I joined, I went there and I had a wonderful time for for four years. So uh, Was it free just for New York residents or just every, free? Everybody. 
Wow. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that's because Peter Cooper actually opened it as, a, as an art school for women in the 1800s. Uh-huh. And, uh, and he's the man who invented the I-beam for skyscrapers. Oh. So quite a wonderful place with a great history and um, fantastic teachers. So I really, I really got a lot out of that one. That was really wonderful. Well, according to what you told me, going to Cooper Union ended up being a very pivotal moment in your life for, for a number of ways. Let's let's talk about that. Well, <laughs> yes. Well, as far as art, I started to do my drawing. That's when I really preferred to do drawing than anything else instead of painting. Although I, I studied painting too, but didn't like it. <laughs> But uh, that, that's a whole other story. But you didn't like um, it because you told me it, it took too long. <laughs> it, it, that's the that's the funny answer. Yeah. But, uh, but it, it it was I had this I had this vision that I was getting paint all the way up to my elbow. You know, I was drowning in paint, and I I, I couldn't really control it. Mm. With drawing, I could. And one mm-hmm. of the one of the faculty members, Jack Stewart, saw that I was struggling. And he said, I'm going to give you a show in the, in the student gallery at Cooper Union. So he gave me a show of my drawings. And wow. I still I still have them. And I, every so often I put them online. But they're, they're just great. And they're, they're drawings that look like the ones I'm doing now. So that's uh-huh. when I first started doing that. And the, the, the art world at that time and the teachers were mostly conceptual artists. And I had nothing. I had no no idea what that was. So I just wanted to draw. Would and you tell the listener what conceptual art is? I know what it is now, but I didn't know then. Oh, it's uh, creating art with ideas, not really making something physical, but uh, really making. Um, I guess you could call it happenings and things like that. That were uh-huh. just they weren't really they were, they that you couldn't touch them. You know, they, they were ideas mostly. I see. And that that was considered art. What did they, art was whatever you made of it for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't quite believe that, but I I didn't have any struggles with it. I just was happy that I had a teacher who supported me. Yes, that's incredible. But um, Cooper Union was also important to you for something else. That's yes. I met my wife. Yeah, <laughs> Daria Dorsch, and um, that was quite wonderful. Um, she, she she took to me as fast as I took to her. You know, it was very interesting. Didn't um, you see her on a subway or something? You oh, you want to hear that? That's a wonderful story. Uh, my brother, who's no longer with us, uh, came down to visit me in New York. And uh, we we were getting off the station at, at Astor Place. And Daria was in the, another car and came out of the station to go to go to school, to go to Cooper Union. And I said to my my brother, Neil, I said... That's going to be my wife. That's Daria. She's going to be my wife. I had no reason to believe it. No reason. It was just came out of my mouth. Oh, and, that's uh, amazing. And it wasn't long before we uh, we got married. Well, we, we were still in school. And we found out that Cooper Union has a, 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 a group called Cooper Couples. Mostly the guys coming back from World War II and coming to school, the GI Bill. But of course, that was much after that. But I, I joined the Cooper couples. Too. We joined the Cooper couples. Uh huh. Yeah, so it was very amenable to that happening. Very so romantic. you could live in the dorm together, in other words. 
We could, but we actually had apartment. We we, we had her apartment. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I had a I had a, a shoddy apartment on the Lower East Side, and I had a job, which I I was a guard at the Museum of Modern Art, so I would I would run down from my job to go to school. Um, so that's another story sometime. Wow, but what a great job for somebody who's an artist. It's a fantastic job. And all these guards, most of them were all, um, they were jazz musicians and artists and uh, just hilarious, some hilarious people. And uh, we had a great time with the public. We, we really played pranks on them, and it was, it was quite a fun job. You played pranks on the public? <laughs> well, just, uh, just briefly, uh, one of one of one of my fellow guards would be standing next to the Guernica, the Picasso, the giant painting. Uh-huh. And someone would come up and say, "Excuse me, would you tell me where Guernica is?" He says, "Oh no, it's not in this museum. It's at the Met." <laughs> or, or they had false walls that you could go into. But that's where the, the painters all put their supplies for the painting, the walls, and so on. And you'd station yourself behind a painting. You knew a painting was on the other side of the wall. And someone would tap another a colleague would tap on the on the wall, and you'd start talking to the person who was looking at the painting, and they had no idea where that sound came from, where that voice came from. And they wow. So we did little things like that, and the the, the administration really hated us. They didn't they didn't fire us, but they used to they used to uh, you know tell us we should stop doing that. But that you was. Know. That's I funny. Did, I, did that for, I did that for two years. Oh, that's great. Well, you know, I think we're going to take a quick break here, John, okay? Oh, sure. You've been listening to Catskill Character with today's guest, artist John Tomlinson. We'll take a quick break and be right back. This music can reach further than we've ever imagined into worlds that have so little to do with our culture, the culture of Ashkenazi Jews. The music transcends. It takes hold. Someone hears it, falls in love with it. That, that's why I'm so happy to share this with you. I'm Aaron Bendich, and I play a selection of Jewish recordings on Borscht Beat on Radio Catskill. Sunday afternoon at 1. You put a ring on it. You spent two decades together. Now what? On the next episode of Selected Shorts, Wedlock with an emphasis on lock. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Say I do, at least for an hour. Sunday night at 7 on Radio Catskill. Welcome back to Catskill Character. I'm your host, Donna Fellenberg, and my guest today is the Lumberland artist, John Tomlinson. In the first half of the show, we spoke about John's experience in the Army, his studies at Cooper Union, where he met his wife, the artist Daria Dorish, who is a co-founder of AIR Gallery in New York City, the first nonprofit arts organization founded in 1972 by 20 female artists to provide an alternative to mainstream institutions that excluded women. We're going to take a dive into John's career, so let's get to it. 
You know, I just wanted to ask one quick question, John, about AIR. Is there still a problem with women being excluded from mainstream art institutions, or has that improved over the years? Oh, it has improved tremendously. There are real art stars who are women. I, I know there are probably still people who are prejudiced against women artists, but they're they're in the minority. You know, so it seems to be pretty equalized. But at that time, gallery told one of the member artists before they formed the gallery, we already have a woman in our gallery. So that's what they were up against, that kind of thinking. They were up against, but they didn't sit back. They formed the gallery. Yes. I think and, some of them actually went to Atlantic City and burned their bras in a big. <laughs> Darius in a in a movie that someone took, of burning their, her bra in a big barrel with a fire coming out of it, and so on. So you know that was a time of activism with in feminism. Yes, when we first spoke, you told me a story about the famous artist course. Would you tell the listener about that? There was a famous artist course where they would send you this giant book with all kinds of programs in it. It's like a class. You have to complete one of the programs and send it into Greenwich, Connecticut. And they'd correct it with pencil, red pencils and so on and send it back to you. And then you could keep working on it. But my father paid for it. It was like 300 bucks at that time, 1950s. That was a lot of money. A lot of money at that time. But my father had gone to art school, and he was also a, an architect and engineer, electrical engineer. He loved the program, and he helped me with a lot of it. But sometimes he would do it himself. Oh. <laughs> it was very charming, but he'd like, let me do this one. I want to try this one. So he he wanted to get back into it. So I learned a lot from it. But eventually, I, you know, being a teenager, I gave it up, but he kept doing it. Oh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> You're well known for your graphite drawings. You've done... Also, so many other things you write. Poetry, you've done poetry, collaboration, animation, mentoring, teaching, art books, videos, writing. So I I was wondering, John, how many hours of sleep do you get? Oh, listen, I sleep okay. The thing is, I I do it when I have a vision for what I want to do. I don't just do it like I I have to go to the studio today. I'm an artist. I have to do this and I have to do that. I, I sometimes don't go there at all. But when I do go there, I spend a lot of time to finish it, to you know, to really work it up. But I found out that this is true of a lot of artists. They're not in the studio every day. They, they have a life. You know, they're doing all kinds of other things. And nowadays, there are so many things to do. Like, don't go to the studio, but get on your iPad and do an animation program with mm-hmm. your drawings. So it's really more like do it when you feel that urge, that vision that you want to work on, you know, to, to develop create. Do you ever get visions in your dreams? That's never worked for me. Of course, I do get visions in my dreams, but it never it never translates into art. Uh I I seem to be mostly interested in what's going on in the world and how I feel about it. That's where Misery of Men comes in. I know you want to ask me questions about that, where I try to be in touch with the feelings I have about other people and my life. Not politically, but more like, um, how do I see the world and how do I respond to it with art? How do I get it into my art without being overly political or anything like that? In the year 2000, you stopped drawing for three years. So I have three questions about that. Yeah. What happened? Why did that happen? What was that like for somebody who's usually so busy? And I think you're going to tell me you were still busy. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> what motivated you to get back into it? You know, it's a very good question. Very few people ask me that. I had spent my whole early art life drawing from observational drawing, drawing from life, models, landscapes, all from what was outside me. The word drawing, by the way, I love that world because you're drawing the world into your mind, onto your paper. I got to the point where I thought, I've done a lot of this. Maybe I have to find out what else I can do. I have other things in my mind. How do I turn that into art? How do I express that? I didn't know right away, but I knew that I wanted to find some other way. I wanted to make drawings that were as big as paintings. You know, I wanted mm -hmm. to make drawings that are a major work. And that led me to think, well, how would I do that? Where will the visions come from? And I realized it would come from my brain, right? my, my visions, my thoughts, my expressions. It took me three years to get to that point. To this day, I look back on it and say, that didn't bother me at all. I had all kinds of other things I did. It's a three-year process where you were thinking about this, and then you, I'm assuming you eventually did do those large drawings. Oh, very much so. I have a whole bunch of them now, yeah. and I'm still working on it. It's almost liberating, not that I'm not tied to what I observe, but that I can take what's in my mind and develop it. You Your know. imagination is very exactly. fertile. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I ran across a review of your work, and there was a quote in there that stuck with me, and here it is. John Tomlinson's drawings reach across the room to see if you are paying attention. <laughs> How do you isn't, interpret that? And isn't how, that wonderful? Yeah. That, that yeah. was by Suzanne Bybee, who's a former art critic, but more of a curator. She never believed that she was a good writer when I complimented her. That was an amazing statement. Yeah. And it, it really sparked me. It really made me think that I am having an impression on people. I always felt like I was an outlier. I'm, I'm, I'm not in the art world. I don't really like the commercial art world. I like galleries and I like have people having shows, but I never warmed up to my art becoming a commodity. If they want to buy it, fine, but I don't want to make it a commodity. And that sentence of hers really woke me up mm. in a way. And I found since then that I'm aware of other people having similar expressions. One of the finest ones is someone saying, wow, which is really nice. That's, that's, that's all they want to say about it. And other people really, in my, my recent uh, show at the Narrowsburg Union video show, people wrote in the guest book paragraphs about my work. Wow. So I thought, well, I'm really having, an, this is wonderful. I don't need a gallery in New York. People are responding to my work. I'm, I'm really communicating with them. So yeah. I'm, still very, I'm still very happy with that. You know, this would seem a good point to uh, talk about the generosity model. Mm. Because um, in the art world, you know, it's very, you know, you hear about these uh, works that are being sold for millions and millions of dollars. But um, the generosity model is about uh, giving what you can. Right, giving back, and you're give, and you're an artist, so you're giving your art. So would you would you talk about that for a moment? Yeah, I can tell you uh, some of the things. I, when I was teaching at Parsons and, and the head of the New York Studio Program, I invited art critics to come and talk to the students. And one of them is a very well known eccentric art critic who came to my studio in Manhattan and spent four hours talking about my work. I wanted to have him write about my work. And after the four hours, he said, well, I have to go now, he said, John. Uh, I really enjoyed this, he said, but you know I'm never going to be able to criticize your work because I, I'm getting to like you too much. So when I thought, that's how the art world is working. Like, to this day, he, he ignores me. I once walked into a gallery in New York, and he was with a whole bunch of housewives from Westchester County talking about art. He raised his voice and said, hey, ladies, that's John Tomlinson over there. And so he would play with me sometimes. It was, it was like a, a world that I didn't want to be involved in. So the opposite of the generosity model is, you know, the model where you, you have to 
really get get rejected all the time. You know, you do what you can to get a show or get a review or something like that. And then, like what this fellow did to me, he rejected me right after he talked to me. And when I saw him in a gallery, he'd sometimes come over and give me a hug. And, uh, and it was very, very discouraging. And I mm. realized that the art world is just big money, collectors telling you what, what's art and what isn't art. And so your art becomes a commodity. Now, if you don't mind selling your work, which I don't mind, you, you want to do it as a, uh, an encounter between two people rather than selling it to a big collector and never seeing your work again, uh, not really talking about it anymore. So anyway, it's a, it's a bit of a problem for me. I'm happy with other people doing it if they want to do it. But, you know, artists are not being uh, really being selected and looked at by, by people who are in the big art world. People like me. And, and the other thing is that some artists are competing with you all the time. You tell them how much you like your work, but they'll never tell you how much they like your work. You, you know, tell them how much you like their work, but they won't return that. That's it. So the generosity is like sharing. Yes. Sharing things together about the art world, talking about it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they, you find out later that they really like you and they like your work, but they'll never tell you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny, right? Yeah. It, in 2017, uh, you gave a talk in Beach Lake about why you make art. And part of your answer was that in making art, it talks back to you and tells you who you are. And I was thinking, doesn't that information change over time? You know, that's that's a good question. I know that, that um, art changes over time. I mean... Um, when you when you look at a Van Gogh, for instance, uh, every time you look at it, it's a different painting in a way. You're seeing it differently based on how much time has passed in between looking at it. Mm. Um, when I was a guard at the Museum of Modern Art, I, I didn't look at the work anymore because I was standing there w- with it. Or, oh, yeah, very much so. When I do a drawing sometimes, I have it on the wall and uh, come back the next morning and I say, oh, my God, I don't uh, no. I got. I got. I. I have to let this sit for a while. I don't think I like it. Uh, but then, over over a few days, I say, "Wait a minute, that looks pretty." I have. In fact, I have one right now on my wall. that's like that. It's completely different from what I've been doing. And I thought, no, no, I can't. I can't. I can't continue like this. Mm. But I. But then I. Then I see it in. I see it in a fresh manner. And uh, say, okay, maybe I'll let this sit just a little longer. I'm beginning to like it. <laughs> so that's it. Yeah. That's how it works, yeah. You know, there's so many other things I want to ask you, but unfortunately we're running out of time. Oh. So um, I do want to mention that you have a website. It's johnwtomlinson.com. And if you're interested in John's art, you should definitely check it out. And I want to thank you so much, John, for joining me today. It's really been a pleasure. It has been very much a pleasure for me, too. And thank you very much for having me. I like your program a lot. Oh, thank you, John. You've been listening to a conversation with the artist John Tomlinson of Lumberland, New York. (laughs) Catskill Character is on every Saturday except the last Saturday of the month when Greg Triggs brings us Travels with Triggs. Join us Saturdays at 10.30 for more fascinating stories from characters of the Catskills and beyond. I'm Donna Fellenberg. Thanks so much for listening.
Radio Catskill supporters include Sullivan Catskills Visitors Association, SullivanCatskills.com, Catskill Brewery, brewing ales, lagers, and mixed fermentation beers in a LEED Gold certified building, plus a food truck and beer garden at exit 96 off Route 17 in Livingston Manor, CatskillBrewery.com, and listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Tanya Mosley. If you collect classic cars and you're thinking about making some room in your collection, please consider donating it. Proceeds help us bring you the NPR news that you expect for your community. Thanks in advance, and here's how to get started. We accept any vehicle, running or not. Donate your car, boat, or motorcycle at WJFFRadio.org. On last week's Wait, Wait, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen explained how she became addicted to Candy Crush. You know, I'll just play a couple of levels. Sure. See what it's like, these candies, you know, that you're breaking up with bombs and things like that. This morning I hit level 6,180. <laughs> See how far you get playing our games with special guest Top Chef host Kristen Kish. That's Wait Wait from NPR. Sunday morning at 10 on Radio Catskill. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Radio Catskill. On air, online, on your smartphone, and on your smart speaker. Public Radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. We are Radio Catskill, keeping you connected. <laughs>